morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Past Ball Show, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Apologize for the little bit of audio issues. We're still working on a couple different things that we're trying to do to make sure the game, the show, and I like to call the show the game, you know, is the most interactive possible and is state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line, you know, performing at a very high level. So we're working on a couple things when it comes to the connections and the speakers and stuff like that. So the show will be able to amplify a little bit louder later on over the course of the show. But glad to be with you. Um, teasing the show for tomorrow that yeah, we're going to celebrate Halloween. We're going to dress up. It's going to be pretty uh, pretty epic. So it'll be the show tomorrow afternoon. It will knock out a couple different topics we're going to hit up today. Um, we're kind of previewed if you're looking through Periscope, if you're looking through Facebook Live. And you read a couple of the topics. Obviously, those are things that I'm going to talk about. But the first thing that I want to get into today is something that kind of baffled me a little bit because it, it shows really what people think when it comes to fantasy football and why pro football, the way it's set up right now, is t so totally based off of the gamblers and is essentially being ruled by people that are betting on the sport day in and day out. And but those statements, they sound pretty obvious. And I, and I understand from that perspective, you say, well, gambling's been going on in professional sports for a series of years. Why now do you choose to make this point? My point has been, while I do gamble on the sport, while I do play fantasy sports, that the attention... The reason that pro football has grown and become this superpower sport, the reason that pro football has become essentially the pastime of this country is 100% because of the gambling aspect and not about the play that you see on the field. And I think, I think it's something that has to be separated. We have to understand that, sure, you know, there are issues going on with the play of the National Football League, the refereeing, the penalties, anything that you want to put in there to say that people are not interested in the sport or disappointed in the sport or don't feel as passionately about watching the National Football League week in and week out like they did in years past, the thing that's drawing people in is the gambling. And people are betting, whether you're betting on the over-under, whether you're betting on the point spread, whether you're playing a regular fantasy in a regular fantasy football league, which we know millions and millions of people do each and every week, and when they do that each and every but of week, of course, the class team that I see right now is the Rams. What was your biggest takeaway from that? In the end of that Packers. Game? So when it, when they when they look at the amount of people that are betting yeah, on the sport, that's, 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 at some point you're expecting, like, and I'm sorry base, about this right, uh, audio are, issue. Whatever it is, just won't stop freaking talking. Sometimes I'm telling you, I just want to punch CBS Sports in the mouth. You can't click on an article without some asshole loudmouth just blurting about something. Usually talking something in no relation to what you're trying to read. But I digress. Todd Gurley sealing up a victory the other day against the Green Bay Packers. And by the way, the, the game of the week in the National Football League. It ended up being that 425 start. It was set up a prime matchup. You got the Los Angeles Rams who came into the game 
undefeated against the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers. And so many different things happened in that game from the fact that it was surprisingly not a slugfest. It wasn't a 45-40 to 40 game. The Rams, for the first time all season, were held down in their ability to go up and down the field like they had done really through the better part of the first seven games of the season. And the game was close at the end, and Todd Gurley on a what looked like it was going to be a touchdown run to seal the victory for the Los Angeles Rams decides to stop short. He decides to stop short at about the four-yard line, pretty much sealing what was a victory for the Los Angeles Rams. And I tell you, I give Gurley credit for so many reasons. And, you know, as, as a person that does own him on one of my fantasy football teams, I could care less that Todd Gurley decided to stop short of scoring a touchdown in that last minute. The issue that I have is for anybody that is looking at that and really is upset at Todd Gurley for simply just doing his job. His job is to make sure that his team wins football games. His job is not to get as many yards and as many touchdowns as possible. Now, you might want to say that's a little bit of a hypocritical statement, John. You know, how come his job isn't to get as many yards as he can? How come his job is not to score as many touchdowns as he possibly can? The reality is he plays for a team, and his job is to help his team win. And if, and if that wasn't the case, then how come when his team is up, 35-3 to three with you know 12 minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Why is he sitting on the sidelines and not pumping out more yards and more touchdowns? Todd Gurley understood his role and his purpose on his team in the National Football League. It was to make sure that his team wins the game. The goal of that last drive was to make sure that Aaron Rodgers wouldn't touch the football again. We know Aaron Rodgers' ability to march a team down the field. He's done it for many, many years with the Green Bay Packers, and he has led the Green Bay Packers to tr tremendous amount of wins in the last minute or two in games. Todd Gurley getting that first down assured that there was no way that the Green Bay Packers were going to get the ball again. And if the Green Bay Packers weren't going to get the ball again, Los Angeles Rams were guaranteed victory. So he did his job. So if you're a Todd Gurley owner and you lost your fantasy football matchup by six or less points, it just happens. It's just life. But to go out there and blame Todd Gurley for not skirting in the end zone, which he could have. He could have ran in the end zone, and you know what? Nobody would have talked about him running up the score this wasn't, you know, the uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff of South Dakota State game where South Dakota State won 90-6. This isn't running up the score. Nobody would have been upset if Todd Gurley got in the end zone. But you know what, though? He showed and he proved that he understands it. He understands what the sport is about. His role in the sport that he represents is to do what he can to help his team win. Not to get the most yards. Not to get the most touchdowns. And you know what, an entire generation of younger people that are playing fantasy sports and may have played fantasy sports since they were six or seven years old may not understand that. They may think that every major pro athlete's goal is just to get the most fantasy points. 
That's not the way it works. It's about helping your team win the game. So Todd Gurley gets it. I'm sure there's many people that play fantasy football out there that don't. Next thing I wanted to get into. You got the Cleveland Cavaliers firing head coach Tyron Lue after the first six games of the season. Of course, things have not gone well for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Zero and six start. Now, I, I picked the over when the season started. I think the number was 30. I guess if you wanted to try to recoup some money, because it doesn't look like a sound investment at this point, you could probably put some money on the over-under now, which I'm sure has dropped below 30. So you want to recoup some of that money, maybe if it's sitting at 25 or 23 or 21, and you either want to bet the over or the under, you may have a chance to get some of your money back that you lost by betting over 30 for the Cleveland Cavaliers like I did. That being said, the team probably had a little bit higher expectations, certainly not expectations enough to go out there and win themselves an NBA championship. This was a team that, yes, had made it to the NBA Finals four straight years, but a team that, for obvious reasons, was probably not equipped to do the same thing. And it's amazing because the perspective that can be put on this, and it can be thrown out there in many different ways, Tyron Lue lost the clubhouse. He lost the locker room. All of a sudden, Tyron Lue, a guy who was a good coach for two and a half years, led his team to an NBA championship in his first half a season as a head coach, taking over for David Blatt. Two straight NBA finals after that. All of a sudden, doesn't know what the heck he's doing. And the fact that the Cavaliers, general manager Cody Altman, and owner Dan Gilbert would decide that the best thing to do is to change coaches after six games. And six games which have not gone well for the Cleveland Cavaliers. They haven't played well. They certainly do look like one of the worst teams in the National Basketball Association, at least the way things are started. But all doing that by leaving the obvious white elephant out of the room. Did the Cavaliers expect to win an NBA championship without LeBron James? How much were the Cleveland Cavaliers' expectations hampered by LeBron James' decision to go to the Los Angeles Lakers? Now, I stated that I believed that the Cavaliers, or James, when he left this time to go to L.A., as opposed to when he went to Miami, put... The, or left the Cleveland Cavaliers in a little bit of a better position than he did when he left to go to the Miami Heat. That being said, I'm looking at them at the very least coming into this season as a borderline playoff team, as a team that may be able to sneak in there with 35 or 36 wins. And obviously with six losses in their first six games, it doesn't even look like that's going to happen. But I wasn't confusing the Cleveland Cavaliers with the Cleveland Cavaliers of three years ago when they won an NBA championship. I wasn't confusing this Cleveland Cavaliers team with some of the Laker teams in the early part of 2000s. I was not confusing this Cleveland Cavaliers team with the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s. This was a team that was expected to struggle this year. Certainly expected to lose a lot more games than it was going to win this year. But 
I always think it's, it's, it's hilarious, the view that's put when it comes to coaches in professional sports and managers in Major League Baseball. Because as little of an impact as they may have on their individual squads, they are judged as if they are the ones that have controlled whether they are winning or losing. Tyron Lue was the reason why the Cleveland Cavaliers were 0-6. and six. Not the fact that LeBron James wasn't there. And I think it's a pretty silly statement. Now, there may be some internal things going on, and I've read a couple articles that have suggested that there's a little bit of a dispute going on between Altman and Lou and over perhaps the organization's interest in playing the younger players as opposed to some of the veteran players that are still there. And that could have caused enough of a rift. I mean, you saw what happened in the same uh, city with the Cleveland Browns and the power struggle that existed between head coach Hugh Jackson and offensive coordinator Todd Haley. It led to both of them being fired. I mean, Jackson probably should have been out a little while ago. Was it 336-1 over his last 40 games as a head coach in the National Football League? But I digress. You know, Tyron Lue is judged by the performance of his team regardless of the talent that's assembled around it. And I, while I will agree that they are a little better now than I believe they were, what was it, eight years ago when LeBron ended up leaving to go to Miami, they're still not a good basketball team. They're still, still not a good team that I would expect by any stretch of the imagination to be in a position to compete for an NBA championship. Certainly not to be in a position to compete for a playoff spot this year. So uh, I have an issue with the firing of a coach. Now, the only thing that I'll say to give him, perhaps, to, to give the Cavaliers a little bit of respect in this regard, is the possibility that maybe they should have let Tyron Lue go after LeBron James ended up going to the Los Angeles Lakers. As we hit the halfway point here in the past ball show, just a reminder, the Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. So I'll continue. The only thing that I would say to give the Cavaliers a pass or a little bit of a positive judgment in regards to this decision would be if they decided to part ways with Tyron Lue at the end of last year. To say, hey, LeBron's going to the Lakers. This team's going to look different. We're going to look to rebuild. We want a new voice in there. We pretty much knew or know that Lou was LeBron James's guy. And it was understood that he was James's choice to be the head coach of that team. And maybe it was time to go in a different direction. That's the only thing that would have made any sense. I mean, it looks stupid. It looks like the Cavaliers are not understanding of what's going on. It, they are tone deaf. Did they not know that that team wasn't going to be any good this year? Did they not know the impact that LeBron James could have on an NBA team over the course of an entire year? Him being there as opposed to him not being there and what that meant to that Cleveland Cavaliers organization? I just think it's a little silly. Next thing I want to get into you hear that uh, Ray Carruth ends up being released from prison after 18 years. And for those that haven't paid much attention 
or didn't pay much attention to his murder trial and his subsequent conviction of the involvement in the murder of his, I guess, his girlfriend and his girlfriend's unborn child. It was a complete horrific situation. And a man that, whether he actually committed the murder himself or was part of a conspiracy to commit a murder, he certainly deserved a more serious punishment than he ended up getting. To be out in 18 years seems like seems like a little bit of a bargain. And the unfortunate thing about what he did, and I'm sorry, we're hitting audio issues again. So what we'll try to do um, over time is we'll edit some of this parts out. And once again, my my issue with this all along has been. What I'm trying to do as far as reconfiguring the speakers here. So I apologize for that. But anyway, Ray Carruth was convicted and sentenced to serve 18 years, which you figure in the grand scheme of things, he probably deserved to serve more of a sentence. That being said, he had the right to a trial, the right to representation uh, of an attorney, the right to a trial by jury, the right to the penalty of the decision of the judge and what the judge ended up saying was you know when it comes down to it the prop I guess the penalty that he was entitled to receive so he did his job he served 18 years he ended up getting out probably because of good behavior and is now free free to roam the country he is free to continue his life many people have committed very similar things to what Ray Carruth has done and have not in certain instances had the freedom that Ray Carruth is going to have right now. So the reason that I want to talk about this is not to bash a convicted murderer. And in, and you could say, you could give it, if you're a Ray Carruth apologist, you could say that he may, not, may or may not have committed the actual murder and was convicted of the you know, being involved in the murder plot to kill his girlfriend. And that may be true, but it doesn't take away the heinousness of what he did and what he was involved in. Now, I think there's two ways that we could go about this. And, I, and from people that have spoken about serving time in prison, and honestly, I have not. So it's something that I absolutely cannot relate to. Something I probably would choose not to relate to, but you know what? I, I haven't had the opportunity to serve any time in prison at this point in my life. Don't plan on it. But because of that, I can't give a perspective and I can't say, hey, this is what the feeling is for somebody that does go to prison or does serve time in prison. And when you come out, you feel this way. But I, I do think there is a mentality that exists where some people do feel more comfortable in prison. It's a, li it's a lifestyle, maybe in some cases you could say is, cho is chosen, but there's a comfort that for people that are there for a long time that can relate to somebody that works at a certain job in a certain environment for a long period of time. So the question is, is this person more comfortable serving time in prison or are they more comfortable being out here in the real world 
free with the general public. And there's a couple ways that he can handle what he's doing right now. And my message to Ray Carruth is this. Sure, you're going to get some side eyes. You're going to get some people that are, you know, especially in your own community, they're not going to be comfortable around you. Your trial and the conviction of being involved in the murder of your girlfriend is something that became a very national story. So people know your name in a very negative way. Your name comes up and people are very upset. They're upset with what you did. They're upset with what you involved yourself in. You're, they're upset with the fact that a decision that you made led to the demise and murder of your girlfriend. She didn't need to lose her life. That all being said, you have a chance to make your life worthwhile from this point forward. And Ray, what I'd suggest that you do is get involved with different groups involved with prisons across this country. Get involved with certain youth groups that are involved with different uh, juvenile offenders. Kids and young men and young women that are in the process of making bad decisions over the course of their life. Somebody like you, Ray Carruth, can make an impact. Somebody like you, Ray Carruth, can get somebody that is on the path of potentially making a big mistake in their life. Somebody that is on the verge of going on that downward spiral to make decisions that they will regret for the rest of their life. You have a voice that may be able to reach out to them. Their parents may not be able to reach out to them. Their counselors may not be able to reach out to them. Their good friends and the people that are closest to them may not be able to make an impact on anything that's going on in their life right now. But you, because of what you did, even though it was heinous, even though it was a terrible decision, even though it was something that you probably deserved more time to serve in prison for, what you've done, because it's in the past, is something that's going to resonate with people and people who could be potentially future offenders. And if you spent time talking to groups of people, if you spent time talking about the stupid decisions that you made in your life that led you to do what you did, you may be able to prevent the next person from doing something like you did. You may be able to speak to groups of men that have unfavorable relationships with their girlfriends. You may be able to speak with men that may be on the verge of getting a divorce from their marriage. And you may, you may be able to show them, listen, this is the extreme of what people can do if they don't get the proper, proper counseling for issues that they got going on in their head right now. And I don't know if Ray Carruth admits what he did. I don't know if Ray Carruth, you know, regrets what he did. But I do know that God puts us all here for a certain reason. And I don't think God led Ray Carruth to do what he did. In fact, what he did was as far from God as possible. You know, so far from God, it's awful. 
thus the expression, god-awful. But there is a chance that he could potentially impact a couple other people that could be in the same path that he was to prevent them from making a bad decision like he made. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find in no beer at any cost. New York Mets plan on introducing their new general manager today, press conference, about 2.30 Eastern. Um, it's going to be perhaps a big day when it comes to the New York Mets. Um, if you are trying to figure out exactly what type of direction this team is going in, you would have every right to not be sure. You would have every right to have a little bit of doubt when it comes down to it. A player agent has served as a general manager in the National Basketball Association for a couple different teams, including the Golden State Warriors, team that is probably one of the more prolific teams in all professional sports at this moment. We haven't seen it happen in baseball. You know, we saw Paul D. Podesta, who was a general manager for the Detroit I'm sorry, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and was an assistant GM for the New York Mets, go to the NFL and be part of the operations department of the Cleveland Browns. But very seldom do you see an agent, especially one like Brody Van Wagenen, somebody who is as high profile and is so involved in regards to being an agent. In other words, Brody Van Wagenen, around the All-Star break this year, had some issues with the way the Mets were handling their discussions in regards to Jacob DeGrom. Basically telling the Mets, hey, if you want Jacob DeGrom to be around long-term, sign him. If not, trade him. Now all of a sudden he's on the other side. and Hence the part of partial title of the show, Brody Both Sides. Brody had the his job to represent players like not just Jacob DeGrom, but you know, Ennis Cespedes, Noah Syndergaard, Todd Frazier, Jason Vargas and probably a couple other players on the Mets that I haven't identified. Pretty similar to what's going on with the Washington Nationals and power agent Scott Boris. Scott Boris represents a series of Washington Nationals players and actually got to a point, and I believe the beginning, the opening day roster of the Washington Nationals last year, I think he represented somewhat about nine or ten different players that were on the opening day 25-man roster for the Washington Nationals. So I make this point. If the Washington Nationals decided to fire Mike Rizzo as their general manager and hire Scott Boris, wouldn't that provide a little bit of a conflict of interest? Boris, who I don't know if he needs to take the job or I don't know if he would even want to take the job, would certainly have to relinquish his role that he plays in the lives of those players. And the same thing is going to apply to Brody Van Wagenen with the New York Mets. An agent, in some cases, is an extended part of one's family. Now, it doesn't mean that the relationship between the agent and the player has to end, but as it applies to being an agent and being a player, that does have to end. 
So how does it impact the role between Ben Wagenin and a Jacob DeGrom, for instance? A person that was responsible in Van Wagenin's case for making sure that DeGrom got the longest term contract and the most amount of money. Not just for DeGrom's sake, but for the sake of all the other players that down the road are going to be in a similar position. He would not want Jacob DeGrom to settle for one penny less than what he's worth on the open market because that's going to keep that next star pitcher that's in a Jacob DeGrom category from getting the same amount of money down the road. Could potentially impact the earning potential of a Noah Syndergaard. So he's in that spot where all of a sudden he flips, he becomes the general manager, he is the person in charge of signing players to contracts. He's in charge of operating an organization when it comes to the terms of a certain budget to make sure that he gets the most in regards to player performance for the least amount of dollars that are possibly going to be spent. And the Mets ownership, though they've had the tendency of being able to spend at certain times, they also have proven that they operate at a certain budget and may not in certain cases be willing to go above and beyond to accommodate certain contracts. Now, the Johanna Cespedes contract is something that they absolutely agreed to. Going down the road, Carlos Beltran, before that, Mike Piazza. And if you go back to the 90s and the 80s, you know, the extension of a Keith Hernandez, paying Gary Carter. You know, obviously the worst team money can buy in 1992, the second worst team money could buy in 2002. Players that were getting paid in 2009 and 2010 and 2011, the Jason Bays, the Oliver Perez's, the Luis Castillo's. Those were all contracts that were not decided to be signed by the Wilpons. So those that want to knock the Wilpons and say that they're cheap, they have for a series of years taken the advice of the chief baseball people that are making decisions. Now, Omar Minaya's mistakes turn out to be Fred and Jeff Wilpon's mistakes, which is something that you take on as a role of an owner when you become the owner of a franchise. And something that Fred Wilpon has had to deal with since 1980. Jeff Wilpon has had to deal with since he's grown old enough to be able to understand the operations aspect of the organization. But my concern is pretty similar to a lot of other people's. And I guess if my message is going to go out there, what I feel about the hiring of Brody Van Wagenen, I th certainly think it's an outside-of-the-box type of decision. One that is not conventional. One that may have not been expected. And one that perhaps is not necessarily destitute for failure. I don't think it's going to hurt the Mets down the road. I don't know if it's necessarily going to help him. We're going to find out a lot today when this man has his press conference. There's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be questions about the players that he represented, which obviously he has to relinquish those duties to take the job and a role as the team's general manager or, you know, whatever, president of baseball operations. There's going to be questions about what type of philosophy he is willing to invoke on his team. You would expect the Mets to make a run and be competitive in 2019, but you know that there are certain needs that they have as they sit right now at this point of the offseason. Are the Mets going to be aggressive in regards to adding to their payroll? 
They could use a couple bats. They could use a couple relief pitchers. Is he a person that is going to be astute enough with the analytics of the game? Now, he does have experience being involved in, in, in you know, contract negotiations. You know, there are so many different things that get broken down. And when you're trying to push for a player, let's say, in arbitration, you're going to use fine numbers. You're going to use certain analytical stats that are going to either make your player look good or if you're an organization, are going to make your player look bad. So I do believe he is analytically inclined enough. Haim Bloom, who ended up remaining with the Tampa Bay organization, didn't get the job, was probably considered the other finalist, certainly brought that. So I'd be, I'd want to know how much of that analytical mindset that Brody Van Wagenen can bring to the table. I'd want to know that answer to the question of autonomy. How much control does he have over the baseball decisions? Now, I can tell you the answer right now. I'm sure everything's going to have to be passed through Jeff and Fred Wilpon. I don't know if his every one of his recommendations are going to be confirmed. I don't know if every one of his recommendations are going to be allowed. I don't know what type of power he's going to have. And obviously, you think of a pitcher like Jacob DeGrom, you think of a pitcher like Noah Syndergaard, who obviously are going to be passed to other people in the agency. Other people in the agency are going to be representing them. And I don't think it will be a conflict of interest at any point. But how much does Brody Van Wagenen, the agent, impact Brody Van Wagenen as the general manager? His relationship with Jacob DeGrom, I'm sure is not going to all of a sudden change to a point where he's not going to want to see him get paid. Is one of the first things that he does as general manager is negotiate a contract extension for Jacob DeGrom. I think that would be very positive. If he doesn't, maybe, and I wouldn't be in favor of this, but I would understand it, a possible trade to be worked out with Jacob DeGrom and another team. Now, I, I can't see him taking the other side. I can't see him going from a point where he was very, very prominent around the All-Star break, basically telling the New York Mets that if they did not want Jake DeGrom to be on this team long-term, if they did not want to sign him to a long-term contract, the one that he, in turn, deserves, that he should be traded, I can't see him all of a sudden being the reason that Jacob DeGrom is hold back, hold, held back from getting said contract extension. So that's something that I would like to see resolved soon. And I'd be happy to know if he took the job and gave DeGrom that contract. I think it would answer a lot of questions. A little recap of the show today. I didn't put it on the title, but I did want to talk about that girly play at the end of the, the Rams-Packers game on Sunday. Got no issue with Gurley doing what he did. You have a, a sport that is being controlled by gambling, not just from a fantasy impact, but from people that are betting on every possible thing, how many touchdowns is Gurley going to score. His job is to help his team win the game. His job is not to accumulate the most yards, the most touchdowns, and the most fantasy points. Anybody that believes that just is not understanding the National Football League as it exists right now. You have the right to be interested in a National Football League because of the gambling aspect. You do. But when it comes down to it, it is about the players helping their team win not helping you win fantasy matchups, not helping you win your 
your bet that you're putting on uh, your your degenerate get your bet that you're putting with a bookie or in the state of New Jersey or Las Vegas when you can't control the amount of money that you're throwing away. If you lose that money, it's a gamble. It's a shot at a lottery. That's what people do. They're taking their money and they're taking a risk that that money may not come back to them. And if Todd Gurley not getting in the end zone cost you some money and you're pissed off at Todd Gurley from it, he couldn't be any more out of touch. Tyron Lue all of a sudden forgot how to coach. Nobody's going to mention the fact that LeBron James is not there anymore. And that's why the Cleveland Cavaliers are 0-6 and six this year. Ray Carruth, maybe it's time to start speaking to some young men and women and potentially preventing the next Ray Carruth from going out there and killing his girlfriend. Brody both sides will find out. Is he willing to completely turn heel as the Mets general manager and turn his back on the players that he has supported and represented for many years? We'll be back with you tomorrow. Like I said, we're going to do a special show for Halloween. Um, looking forward to it. Hope everybody has a nice day today. And please keep the comments going. Anything going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please let me know. Be back with you tomorrow. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.